Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletaub from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today are Christopher Knight of Knight Vision Fraud Investigations and Megan Griffa, who's Senior Director of Compliance Oversight for Sitecar Health. And today we're going to be talking about the nexus between fraud and compliance. First, uh, Megan, Christopher, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. So, Christopher, let's start with you. Fraud and compliance don't always, but often do go hand in hand. As a result, the fraud and compliance teams will often work together. First, from your experience, what makes for a positive relationship? Um, so, in my opinion, uh, I would say, as with any relationship, communication and uh, and follow-ups are, are pretty much um, what I, I personally believe would uh, make the relationship uh, the strongest it possibly can, you know. But compliance is continually doing audits and reviews, and uh, fraud is obviously doing um, their own investigations and whatnot. So just having that hand-in-hand uh, communication and letting each other know what's going on and what's next and what's been found is a perfect way to just strengthen that relationship, as well as just strengthen compliance for a company um, in general. Yeah, I would agree with that, Chris. I think communication is key and setting up mechanisms to force yourselves to connect at a certain cadence to ensure that that communication is staying wide open. Um, And I think through that communication, being open to hear what each other's needs are and what our different proposed solutions might look like and how you mesh those or where you don't mesh those is important. Um, I would also add uh, avoiding the all work, no play, like really getting to know each other on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Um, just to share a quick story during one of our audits um, a couple of years ago, something that the auditors noted was the relationships amongst the compliance department, including like our legal and our fraud personnel, but also with our operational areas, because they recognize how effective those uh, relationships can be in identifying and remediating fraud and noncompliance. So. I think definitely I agree with you, Chris, keeping communication open and um, really fostering those relationships is going to make your program effective. It's a really interesting call out, actually, uh, the, uh, you know, personal relationship part. I never really thought of that, but it is really actually important. You know, you have to be able to trust who you're speaking with because we work on really confidential and sensitive stuff, um, both our groups. So, you know, being able to trust each other and know that you know, we have each other's backs and that we're doing the right thing and ethically um, is really important. So good call out on that one. Well, and the idea of maintaining strong relationships is just such an important one, especially when a crisis breaks out. Um, You know, you need to already have people that you can count on and trying to establish relationships then is too late. Now, Megan, what compliance tools are useful for fraud teams? Um, you know, relationship is great, but you also have to have some real assets in place. So what have you found uh, is very helpful? Yeah. So actually, Chris and I worked um, at an organization together. We had the honor and and privilege of being able to develop programs from the ground up. And I think what we thought uh, was very helpful for our programming was both adopting the seven elements of of an effective compliance program, treating the fraud aspect kind of as the pseudo element there um, and ingraining all of those seven elements within both programs, not just strictly focusing on those seven elements being present in the compliance side of the house, if you will. 
Um, I think additionally, adopting a risk assessment process for your fraud program um, is helpful in a couple of ways. It, it helps you prioritize your work on the fraud side, as well as define um, work plans that are not just uh, presenting a program where you're just sitting back and waiting for people to report things. You're proactively going out and doing work that is prioritized based on risk in the way you did in the compliance program as well. And I think where you have two programs operating simultaneously, you have the opportunity then when you both have a risk assessment to align, are these risks the same? Are they different? Which will justify how your program is structured as well. Um, so I think those are two key things um, that are important for both sides of the house and not just one or the other. Yeah, basically I took the words kind of out of my mouth on those. Um, you know, it's the risk assessments I think are a major piece because uh, that's kind of both our departments you know, looking under the covers, around the corner, seeing kind of what's there and, you know, looking towards the future and building those work plans, figure out where we're going to go. Um, you know, what what are regulators looking at to make sure that we're kind of step in step with them as well. Uh, one other thing I thought of, and it, I don't necessarily, I guess it, I would call it a tool, but um, for me specifically in fraud, the hotline, um, that compliance oversight manages is a massive tool that fraud utilizes uh, on a regular basis. You know, statistics show that about 42% of frauds are uncovered by tips alone. So you figure almost half of how we in the fraud world identify things comes from people, um, you know, identifying something wrong or whatnot. And I'll be honest, a lot of a lot of that, uh, I think a little more than half of that is actually internal employees. And and I can say without a doubt, uh, as you know, Megan could probably attest that compliance oversight gives us a lot of work too. They identify a lot of these weird uh, outliers that uh, you know enable us to say, okay, maybe there really is something here, and do a real full deep dive of looking at it through a, a fraud lens. So. The hotline one is a, a big one for me, and uh, I couldn't thank Megan and her compliance oversight team enough for building that one out and uh, making sure that we get we get those tips on a timely basis. Um, Christopher, flipping things around, what fraud tools and practices should compliance teams consider adopting? Yeah, I, I've been kind of pondering on this a little bit, and I, I think really any type of analytics or data mining tool um, is pretty much a standard tool that uh, compliance oversight would use as well you know they are doing regular audits of internal and external um, items so utilizing what fraud departments may use or you know SIUs to say a different term um, is is vital, and I think it's it's one of those ones that will absolutely help them uh, along in their endeavors to find kind of those gaps in the processes and, and procedures, and find kind of where a company may not be, you know, fully compliant one way or another. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say there's any specific tool that pops into mind, but just utilizing any type of uh, data analytics and data mining that we use on a regular basis is probably something that's extremely useful for any compliance professional. I mean, I think this is just a perfect demonstration of 
uh, how our relationship fosters like thinking uh because i had the same thing down i agree oh, I think my programs could leverage data mining uh more just as the fraud programs more heavily rely on that uh because typically we're using one of two ways or both ways uh we're doing manual auditing and monitoring to proactively identify issues or we're waiting for people to report suspected issues i think we can get to things faster um, if we're using more of that data mining um, approach. I also had noted um, fraud has a really good structure and program across the industry where you guys leverage each other's data to identify mm. trends or bad actors. Um, there are opportunities uh, as well, but not as many in the compliance side um, that I think you can leverage more. There are organizations out there like, uh, for example, when I was in Medicare Advantage, I used MAPA. Um, another one would be like Health Plan Alliance. Those are organizations where you can put more people in the room talking about the same things and what the trends are, who the bad actors are. You could also build your own network of people to kind of share some information. Um, or very fundamentally, you can go out and look at what ha what's happening in the industry and compare it to what's happening in your organization or use it to anticipate risk by looking at audit reports or uh, things like the OIG work plan so that you know you're kind of on the same path or looking at the same things that may be risk for other organizations. So I think that's a really great tool that's farther developed on the fraud side than it is the compliance side. So the whole data mining thing um, really set off in my mind a question, Megan, is are, are there any clear warning signs of potential wrongdoing both should be on the lookout for? I mean, obviously, you want to try and get hints from each other, but are there things you've seen through the years that really are sort of red flags that everybody needs to notice? Um, yeah, I think where you're always going to look at both sides is are two things. One is your bad acting providers. Typically, when there's fraud from fraud, waste, or abuse from a provider, they're also violating terms of their licensure or their contract with the organization. Um, but I also think when there's internal fraud scenarios, uh, you definitely both want to be taking a look at those things because they're often not only you know conducting fraud, but they're also violating code of conducts and company policies and things. But I think um, the red flags for me more recently are so unique that it's difficult to flag one thing. Um, but I think those are two scenarios where both both teams need to take a look. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, the only, I would say, high level thing I was thinking of too is, you know, going back to that analytics data mining thing, uh, I think some major warning red flag signs would just be those outliers on that data you know that's a great place to start looking uh, especially for for fraud or any type of wrongdoing is those you know whether it be members you know insurance carriers providers whatever it may be um, those data outliers are are the ones that you know should make you scratch your head and be like huh i wonder i wonder why they are so far off the average the norm um and it should be a good red flag for you to look at. So, Chris, um, let's look beyond the actual incident. You know, after the incident happened, it's important to put in place a remediation plan. Uh, each scandal will have its own needs. But overall, are there any elements you find most if all plans should address? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there are two real vital pieces that should definitely always occur. One is... Um, a gap analysis where you're identifying, you know, where the 
problem kind of went wrong? Where where did that uh, non-compliance enable itself to to grow into something bigger? Uh, and then the second piece would be re-reviewing. You know, going back and seeing, okay, well, we identified this one issue. Where are other similar issues being found? And then just continuing doing a cadence of that for a time being to make sure that nothing else is bubbling up, nothing else is uh, kind of morphing into a different type of non-compliance or fraud, uh, and continuing to go from there. Yeah, I would reiterate those points, Chris. A root cause analysis, or like you mentioned, kind of identifying where the gaps were that uh, promoted that bad behavior, but uh, and then further validating not only that the corrective action plan was executed, but that it was yeah. effective is key. Um, and I always focus on two things. When I'm writing a remediation plan, you need to focus not only on resolving that instance, but what are the additional controls or are the controls that you're putting in place for that instance also going to pre prevent future occurrence? Um, I'm always reiterating that as we're drafting corrective action plans because you're not just solving for that one instance. You want to prevent as well. Yeah, no, you're on. most uh, you're, yeah, and you're most definitely never done. I mean, there's always going to be another one trying the same thing and 15 things just like it. Chris, Megan, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us. The relationship between the fraud and the compliance team is an incredibly important one. Uh, I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Chertelt from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective. <music>